Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as the economic impacts from the coronavirus began to be felt uh, early in the pandemic, the Federal Reserve stepped, Federal Reserve stepped up and uh, did its part aggressively injecting liquidity into the marketplace. We even had Congress uh, with a $3 trillion fiscal stimulus plan, all designed to get cash in the hands of consumers and small to mid-sized businesses. But a lot of that stimulus is going to be uh, running out relatively soon. The question is, does Congress need to come through with another round of fiscal stimulus uh, to continue to keep this economy from going over a cliff? Torsten Slock, chief economist at Deutsche Bank Securities, joins us. Torsten, I kind of want to put that question to you here. Uh, how critical is it for Congress to come through with another round of fiscal stimulus? It is very important in the sense that uh, the Congressional Budget Office at the moment forecasts that the unemployment rate by the end of this year will be more than 10%. So that means that, remember, the unemployment rate today is 13.3. And if we still have an unemployment rate by the end of this year that is anywhere around 10 percentage points, that means that a lot of people will still not be back in jobs and therefore will not have incomes. And therefore, we will need to have more income support, similar to the income support that we saw through, uh, most importantly, higher unemployment benefits uh, through the last several months. Now, those benefits normally last 26 weeks, but workers who lost their job back in March will have exhausted all of their unemployment benefits by September, Torsten. Do you think that Congress finds a way around those rules? And if not, how do these people manage? Well, so I'm reading on my Bloomberg screen at the moment that there's a lot of talk about uh, more fiscal support coming. But, Vanya, uh, to your question here, it is all about the exact design. Will the new fiscal support that comes, will that be infrastructure? That will not directly help households, and if anything, infrastructure takes a long time. There are not that many shovel-ready projects normally when you do infrastructure investment spending. So uh, the short answer to your question is that it all depends on what the exact nature of the package will be. There's also been talk about a payroll tax cut. Um, there's also been some discussion about do we need more support of small businesses? Um, how can households otherwise be supported? Do we need to change it from paying people for being unemployed to instead paying people for taking a job? Uh, so this debate is ongoing. Uh, it has been said and talked about that uh, we will here in July, after recess, uh, have more discussions in Congress about it. But this is extremely important for investors because if there is not more fiscal support coming and if we do end up in a deadlock situation where we don't get another fiscal boost, then uh, we could run into some serious issues, in particular solvency issues for the household sector. Torsten, how about at the aid for the state and local municipalities? We've heard uh, many governors led by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, state that they really need uh, fiscal stimulus for the states to balance their budgets. Most states have a balanced budget amendment, and we're seeing uh, forecasts of some multi, multi, multi-billion dollar uh, deficits for a lot of states. That's right, Paul. And that's why this has also been a bullet point uh, that there has been talk about that this is something that's needed. So a very macroeconomic way of, of looking at this whole question is that if the unemployment rate is still 10% in December and going into next year, that just sets in motion a lot of different things uh, that will require, therefore, more support. Uh, local governments, 
household sector balance sheets, uh, corporate sector balance sheets, on the particular small business sector balance sheets. So in that sense, uh, this uh, next few weeks become absolutely critical. The conversations around what will the nature and the design be of uh, any future fiscal support and will there any future fiscal support, will any support be coming along? Uh, that becomes very important for markets because if not, let's say that we don't get more support to the household sector, and if the unemployment rate does end up being 10% by the end of the year, the, again, Congressional Budget Office is forecasting, that means that more people begin to fall behind on their payments, on their car loans, on their credit cards, on their mortgages. You will also see people fall behind on CMBS payments. And across the board, those, of course, increases in delinquency rates will begin to have consequences for credit and for structure finance and a lot of things across the board in fixed income in particular. If you believe that the Fed will not let this happen and that Congress will also not let this happen, particularly in election year, then you have to start believing in MMT, right, Torsten? Is there a problem there? So that's true. And this is why, of course, uh, one option here is that uh, the Treasury just issues uh, a lot more treasuries and then the Federal Reserve just buys them, which is essentially what's happening today. The issue is that um, even from an MMT angle, uh, the Treasury still needs to issue Treasuries and then come to some agreement, uh, meaning Congress and uh, the White House, in terms of how the money should be spent. And what we're debating is really this issue of how should the money be spent. We're not really debating whether the money is available. Uh, this, of course, is a very important debate uh, in many other countries. But in the U.S., it's almost assumed that, of course, we have another trillion or two trillion for this. Uh, and if it is the case that they're going to spend it, then for markets, it does become very important for individual stocks for individual things in credit and fixed income, exactly which balance sheets will get support and which will not. Interesting. Torsten Slock, thank you so much for joining us. Torsten Slock, Chief Economist for Deutsche Bank Securities. Uh, Vani, I think it's really interesting here as we uh, see some news of just you know more uh, cases flaring up in some really, really key economic markets, California, you know, Florida, Texas, what the impact will be on the overall U.S. economy. It'd be very interesting to see how this plays out uh, over the next uh, several weeks and months. Well, plenty of new headlines on the coronavirus in the heartland and in some other states like Arizona and Texas this morning. Arizona virus cases jumping 5.4% over the seven days. The previous seven-day average was about half of that. Let's bring in someone who knows a lot about this now. Lauren Sauer is Johns Hopkins University Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine. So, Professor Sauer, how concerned should we be with certain counties in Texas saying that they're overwhelmed at this point? I think we have every right to be concerned, um, and I think that's reflected in the governor rolling back some of those reopening measures. I mean, you know, there is some talk of of these increased testing numbers just being um, an artifact of the increased availability of tests, but we're still hearing plenty of reports that um, people can't get tests, that tests are still a challenge, and we're still seeing a really high positivity rate as the hospitals start to surge and, you know, you see things like Texas children taking adult patients to manage some of that surge, um, I think we know it's real that, that we're seeing a massive increase in cases and it's very worrying. So, Dr. Sauer, do, from the medical community perspective, are we in any better shape to deal with this surge than we were maybe just a few months ago when New York and New Jersey and, and uh, the Northeast was hit? I think we have a few more tools in our toolkit. Um, we have some therapeutics that uh, are looking very promising. So once the patient is in the hospital, we have some um, improved ability to manage those patients. We know a lot more about the virus and how it inter- how it uh, sort of interacts in the body and how it impacts the patient. That being said, these therapeutics and, and this medical management doesn't keep 
patients out of the hospital. So we have to go back to those um, tried and true measures, you know, that physical distancing, staying home if you don't need to go out, uh, reducing, you know, the flow of people out in public and, and reducing large gatherings and then uh, continuing to use that face covering whenever you are, whenever you do have to be out. So I think we have made some improvements. Um, that being said, simply throwing the switch and reopening is going to put us very close to back where we started again. Yeah, I mean, what would happen if everyone just stayed in place for two weeks? Uh, we know that the COVID cases in New York, just that, that headline coming in now, they rose 0.2%, which was in line with the previous 0.2% seven-day average. And that's because New Yorkers just went home and stayed there for the most part. If everybody in the country literally spent two weeks at home, would this virus be gone? I don't think it'd be gone. I think, you know, you still have your essential workers. You still have people coming and going from healthcare and having healthcare needs and other, you know, day-to-day needs. But we would see a reduction in, in cases, just like we did the last time we implemented these more sort of strict measures. Um, we are working really hard on development of a vaccine and development of improvement of therapeutics that can be given in the outpatient space. So we have a lot of options that are going to be coming on board in the next year or so here. But but until we get to that time, we still are going to have to limit that, that out, outside interaction. So, uh, Professor Sauer, the, as we think about some of the, you know, the things that I think a lot of people would like to do in terms of behavior, i.e. safe distancing, wearing a mask, you know, limiting uh, exposure in large groups. I mean, that really is the primary way today. We don't have therapeutics. We don't have a vaccine. That is really the best way to kind of bend the curve here in these new states, is it not? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that we, in public health, we've always said that as we start to reopen, we have to be willing to, to pull back on some of those measures if we see surges in cases. So, right. you know, there's this sort of hierarchy where it's like staying home is the best. If you have to go out, avoiding large crowds is, is you know, better than being in large crowds. If you have to be in a crowd, being outside is better than being inside. So we have this sort of basic understanding of where the lowest risk is and how that risk starts to creep back in. And the best we can do to stay on the lower end of those of that risk stratification, all the better. What's the, the, the solution that everybody is hoping for? So we're obviously waiting on antibody tests to be better. We're obviously waiting on testing in general to be better. We're hoping for vaccines. We're still not sure if, you know, the, the initial vaccines will be good. Is there any, any hope at all that this virus just mutates itself out of existence? I think you can always hope that. Um, we, we are seeing data that says that there's not a lot of mutation in this virus. Um, I, a lot of people um, with much more virology expertise than me uh, are working very hard on that. But I, I think for now, you know, our targets are vaccine and um, outpatient therapeutics, so things that are low cost, things that can be delivered outside of the hospital to reduce the severity of illness. Um, that's where our targets are. Lauren Sauer, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Uh, always, we're such uh, benefits, be- beneficiaries of having the good, smart people at Johns Hopkins available to us. Uh, Lauren Sauer is the Assistant Professor of Emergency Medi- Medicine at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine. Also, uh, we'll note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies as well. So, Vani, I think the story here, it sounds to me as we're listening to uh, Professor Sauer, it's, it's kind of the story we've heard now for months. Uh, we know what to do. We know what bends the curve here in terms of, uh, cons- uh, you know, 
behavior. Uh, it's just having that conviction to get it done. And uh, the folks in New York and the metro area certainly showed that conviction. Now it's time for some other uh, folks in other parts of the country to do the same. Yeah, and I mean, you'll end up doing it by force, if not by persuasion, it seems like in the end. So may as well start doing it early and, uh, you know, maybe avoid the worst of it. It's just such a difficult position to be in. And the worst part of it, Paul, is that if you're, you know, particularly affected, you could end up living with very long-term effects, and we know that. So, you know, that's just terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we will certainly follow up with that uh, throughout the day. Let's concentrate on one of those sectors now, the banks. The KPW Bank Index down 5.5% right now. Let's bring in Alison Williams, Senior Banks, Asset Managers and Payment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So we had the bank's stress test. We also had a little bit of a relaxation of some of the Volcker rule provisions, Alison. Banks, though, not doing well today. Is this because their dividends are being capped? So the dividend cap, I don't think should be a surprise. In fact, I think, you know, for the most part, uh, the takeaways, should be in line with what people expected. The ongoing scrutiny of the banks, um, you know, there's there's the three-quarter cap on dividends. There's the buyback pause. I think most investors expected that without a mandate by regulators. Uh, there's another uh, metric where they're going to look at dividends as a, as a ratio to the prior year earnings. Um, I think the, the one bank in my coverage universe that, that screens poorly on that is Wells Fargo. And uh, we, along with most, expect, expected a dividend cut. We might get the cut there sooner than expected. We could get that as soon as Monday versus later. Uh, the other bank within my universe that's a focus is Goldman Sachs. Uh, so Wells Fargo screens well on excess capital, but their income is a problem. Goldman, it's the opposite. So their capital... Uh, the capital ratio that we're expecting now, based on the stress test results, might be a little bit higher than previously anticipated. We won't know exactly until Monday. Um, but they have uh, the, the income cushion they have. They have some flexibility around that to sort of improve what their uh, capital ratio is going to be by the time this rule is implemented, so they should be fine. For the broader bank takeaway, the Banks are all going to have to basically resubmit their plans. Uh, the results came out much more negative under a COVID overlay, which was significantly more stressful than um, you know the basic test that's governing capital requirements at the moment. And so the negative for investors is that there will be ongoing uncertainty related to dividends, so not just some of the banks that I talked about, um, but across all banks. But I don't think that should be a surprise to people. We're in an uncertain environment um, and so it shouldn't be surprising that the regulators are going to try to keep their options open. Uh, Allison, it was a little bit of a surprise to me in the sense that, you know, I had heard from a lot of folks, you know, that the banks relative to 2008 uh, going into that crisis were in much, much better financial shape, much better balance sheets, much better on the reserve front. Is this just the Federal Reserve acting out of a, what, you know, the term is abundance of caution here uh, for the near term? I think uh, you're right on all those points, Paul. So, you know, we are in an unprecedented downturn. And when we look at some of the COVID overlays in some of the the U and W-shaped scenarios, we have losses that are, you know, perhaps 30 to 60 percent higher than those used in the the stress test. That's basically setting requirements for banks. And now keep in mind that, to your point, the banks have very healthy levels to capital. You know, I, I talked about Goldman, but the, the, the bar is so much higher 
um, than where it was uh, before, and they're basically close to meeting that. The, the other consideration is just the fact that the banks have been, you know, the solution this crisis, right? So the, the previous crisis, they were the problem. <laughs> now they're the solution. And I think that regulators want to make sure that they can continue to be the solution. So unlike the last crisis where the question was, do these banks have enough capital? You know, the, the focus right now of, you know, current regulators and former regulators is that, you know, we want to make sure that that capital is there and being used to support the economy. And I think some of the thinking is, um, by some of these formula, uh, regulators, is just to err on the side of caution. Um, but, but keep in mind, dividends are, are a small percentage. Wells Fargo is a company that had sort of a higher payout ratio, and I think that's why they're more at risk. Um, but for the most part, all the capital return that we've seen in the several years, about 70% of that has been from buybacks. And we don't, buybacks are paused, the banks uh, stopped those, and, and I wouldn't expect those to return this year. Allison William, thank you so much uh, for that. We always appreciate your perspective. One of the top uh, banks analysts on Wall Street, uh, not just at Bloomberg Intelligence, but before that at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. She's been covering these banks for a long time. Always appreciate uh, her perspective. Allison Williams, Senior Analyst, Global Investment Banks and Asset Management for Bloomberg Intelligence. And it is Texas that we go to now for a Bloomberg Opinion piece called COVID-19 Gives Texas a Reality Check. It's written by our own Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And of course, a a huge career before that. This is just what he's doing right now. Tim, your column is fantastic. You talk to us about the Texas Medical Center, which I'll get to expand upon in a moment. But first of all, is there a dereliction of duty on the part of Governor Greg Abbott right now? Is this his fault? Is it the hubris of Texas residents that places in Texas are being overwhelmed? I mean, when you take us through the timeline, you start in March 19th when New York was already shut down. Texas only had 306 cases then. Right. I, you know, it's. It, it, I think, Vani, it would be unfair and too easy to put, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, fallout from a pandemic like this on the shoulders of any one person. But... Certainly, uh, at a minimum, Greg Abbott bears a lot of uh, blame at this point, frankly. Uh, I think he's had a scattered approach uh, through the governor's house in Texas to taking practical measures that would have helped ensure the safety of most Texans. Uh, We don't know. Obviously, at this point, there are no silver bullet approaches to battling back against COVID-19 until we have a vaccine. But there are practical measures that people can take, that states can take, and that the federal government can take that have been really spottily applied. And they're the basic things. Uh, Washing your hands, maintaining social distance, uh, contact tracing, and of course, mask wearing. And and I think masks have been a useful um, symbol in Texas for some of the problems there because you had mayors across the state asking Greg Abbott to impose uh, uh, a law requiring ma- that masks be worn, and he wouldn't do it. He gave guidance that people should do it, but he left it up to Texans themselves to decide whether or not they should wear masks. And, and that ended up being spottily applied. Uh, the same thing has happened around business openings. Um, uh, early on, Abbott uh, put it in order to lock down businesses across the state. Uh, but within about, I think, uh, five weeks or so of, uh, uh, of the pandemic bursting into view, he began easing that, those lockdowns. 
some people said too prematurely, and, and now he's backtracking. Mm. All right, so Tim, you talk about the, the spotty applications uh, on a statewide basis uh, for precaution measures and responses to the pandemic. That kind of brings me back to something I still don't have a clear picture of. What There does not appear to be any federal uh, efforts to combat the pandemic in terms of laying out some regulations and how this should work at a federal level. Should there be, have there historically been in these types of situations, has the Trump administration kind of not fulfilled its duty? Oh, I, I don't think the Trump administration has fulfilled its duty at all here, Paul. And I think that's where I think first and foremost criticism has to reside. All of the governors across the country, regardless of party, have had to fend for themselves essentially during this crisis because the federal government has not stepped in and done important things like playing coordinating roles around uh, the supply of PPE and testing equipment to the various states. The states have been left to compete against one another and come up with their own policies because the federal government isn't playing a very necessary uh, coordinating role, uh, which it's always done during disasters that are even localized, like, for example, hurricanes. Um, You see FEMA and the federal government play a, a role intervening and coordinating the rescue. The Trump administration has totally um, given up its responsibility for playing a meaningful role in this crisis. And again, that's not an ideological or partisan observation. It's just an observation of the facts. So, yes, I I agree with you. I think think it first has to start with where is the federal government. Um, Even in that vacuum, some states have been more proactive than others in terms of taking this on. And there are some useful comparisons now among the various governors about approaches that have worked and haven't. Yeah, I mean, the Trump administration could also have gone the regulation route, directing agencies to issue regulations which might have shut down parts of the economy as well. So there are plenty of things that the administration could have done legally and without having to jump through hoops and get Congress involved either. Tim, what happens next? I mean, we saw a massive spike in Florida numbers again today. You know, people are saying maybe it's younger people and maybe that will have an impact. But it's terrifying. This virus isn't going away. Fauci even said during the week that, you know, that the summer isn't helping. A lot of people thought that summer would help because lung diseases tend not to spread as fast in summer. But they're just the diseases we know, right? We don't know anything about coronavirus and it's not slowing down. Right. I mean, I think, Vani, that was, you know, based on our understanding of how the flu operates. Typically, the flu season comes in colder months. And there was an anticipation that the summer would give help uh, to folks battling the coronavirus. You know, what we've learned now is that COVID-19 is a particularly fierce virus. It mutates, it adapts, it appears to be resistant to warm weather. Um, uh, but, But the things that we do know that defeat it are, again, things like masks and social distancing. Um, scientists now have reached, um, I think, some sort of joint views that uh, you're, you're safer outside than you are indoors. It doesn't last on surfaces as long as, as people might have thought it did, but it does get communicated to people through close contact, often uh, through the mouth. And whether it's talking, singing, etc., cetera, uh, when we have practical information like this, there are steps we can do, steps we can take to battle back, like closing bars, which Texas just decided to do again today, but it has left its taverns open. And again, I think these are practical responses that have become politicized 
because of the current political environment we're in, which is unfortunate because it's leaving uh, public safety in the lurch. Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go, Tim, maybe 30 seconds. Are you surprised at the level of politicization here? Because we do not see that really in other parts of the world at all. No, I mean, I think I think the United States is, is facing a reckoning right now. Uh, we have a very uh, immature and destructive political dialogue that doesn't allow us to reach solutions. And and we are politicizing things that simply shouldn't be politicized because we've gone through years now of this idea of sort of war on objective reality and facts that makes it hard for people to trust one another and reach consensus. Yeah, it's, it's just so odd. I mean, I suppose the closest you would come to it in the world is Britain's response as well and I mean Boris Johnson himself had the virus and it was very dangerous and he ended up in hospital he had one of the one of the worst cases of the virus and it still didn't really change how he handled the uh, the affair Tim- uh, another close comparison is romper room funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah you remember that Tim, thank you so much. Tim O'Brien is a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I would urge everybody to have a look at his column today. It's it's fantastic. And that that opening paragraph or two about the Texas Medical Center, Paul, it would would send shivers down your spine. Yeah, it it really does. And it's interesting. So Tim has a great column on Texas. Uh, His colleague from Bloomberg Opinion, Joe Nacero, also has a great column out today about Florida and maybe a little bit different take. So Good uh, comparing those two columns there, two states thinking about how to deal with this uh, surge in pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.